You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Hey, Megan. Today's case takes us to the year 1980 at the University of Southern Alabama. I think you'll find that this case is really interesting as it has a lot of twists and turns. So try and stay with me here. All right, Amy. Thanks for the warning. I'll do my very best to keep up. All right. Before we get into the story, Megan, just a little bit on the university. The University of Southern Alabama, or South as the students call it, was founded in 1963 in Mobile. It actually grew out of an extension program of the University of Alabama, UA, but the extension program did not offer four-year degrees, and the people of Mobile had to travel more than 200 miles to UA if they wanted a degree instead of a certificate. So the city began negotiations with UA in order to create their own university to provide better educational opportunities, and they won their first charter in 1963. Now, when South first opened, it was a desegregated school, which for the time and location is pretty astonishing, and their enrollment was around 276 students. Today, the university has grown to over 13,000 students across 11 colleges and schools. Considered the flagship of the Gulf Coast, South is a 1,200-acre campus with research facilities and a university hospital that provides spaces for their medical students' residencies as well as providing necessary healthcare access to residents of the Mobile area. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. But at the time of our case today, Megan, the school was still fairly small at only around 800 students in total, and it didn't have the multiple buildings and acreage that it has today. But in 1979, its quaint familial feel is exactly what attracted two friends from a small town in Mississippi. Catherine Foster and Tish O'Sullivan grew up together in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and they were best friends. Catherine came from a large Catholic family, and they were very close, and she was described as extremely intelligent. Actually, in fact, Megan, she was the valedictorian of her high school, and the reason she picked South was to stay close to her family, as South was only about 40 miles away from where she lived. So this would be far enough to feel like a real college experience, but close enough to go home and visit family. Catherine was also very into service, having gone on mission trips to Mexico to help needy children. And she also had plans to travel to Ireland during the times of the Troubles to help bring peace to the communities there. Belfast had a lot of terrorism in the 70s and 80s. Right. I remember. Unfortunately, I couldn't find much information on Tisha's background, but I can tell you that she and Catherine were lifelong friends who had met in elementary school. Catherine's high school boyfriend, Tom Jondin, was also accepted to South on a soccer scholarship, so all three were looking forward to embarking on the college journey together. 
Not long into the first semester, Catherine and Tish met another girl from their area, a girl named Jamie Kellum. And Jamie became their instant friend. And the three of them were always together. The only time they were ever seen apart was when Catherine was going to hang out with her boyfriend, Tom. Thursday, February 21st, 1980, was a cold, frigid day on South's campus. But despite the weather, the three friends had made plans to go grocery shopping in between their classes. Now, the girls agreed that Jamie would drive and that everyone should meet at her car after their morning class. But when Tish got to the car, Catherine wasn't there, and Jamie explained that Catherine had forgotten her purse and had to go back to the dorms to get it. So the girls waited, but after waiting for about 20 minutes or so, Catherine still didn't show up. So, you know, you, you would think you'd maybe get nervous by this, but for them, for Catherine, this was kind of normal because Catherine would often go off and meet with her boyfriend, Tom, and she wouldn't really let her friends know. She would sometimes, if she, like, perhaps she saw him on the way and the two of them started to hang out. And we can't judge Catherine harshly for this because this is 1980. There's no cell phones, no ways to connect to someone if plans change quickly. So Jamie and Tish went ahead to the grocery store without Catherine and figured they would just catch up with her that afternoon after class. However, Catherine never showed up to the two o'clock class that she shared with Tish. And when Tish found Tom in the library and asked if he knew why Catherine had missed class, he was pretty shocked because it turns out that Tom hadn't seen or heard from Catherine all day. And he thought that she'd been with Jamie and Tish all day. So Tish was very worried at this point, and she, Tom, and Jamie waited around to see if Catherine would end up showing up for dinner, but she did not. Now, this was extremely unlike her, and now Tish got worried enough to call Catherine's parents to see if for some reason perhaps she had gone home. But unfortunately, Catherine was not at her childhood home either, and her parents immediately got in the car and drove the hour drive to South to file a missing persons report. However, in the state of Alabama in 1980, anyone over the age of 18 was considered an adult, and a missing persons report could not be filed until the individual had been missing for 24 hours, and Catherine had only been missing for 12. This 24-hour thing is such an oversight. It's not really the same. I don't know how it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but I know that it's no longer a requirement to meet to wait 24 hours uh, because I think of the recognition now that we lose so much precious time in the beginning. Um, and that's the best chance you have of recovering someone. Yeah. And we've covered plenty of cases where unfortunately it was too late. And had they started searching earlier, it might've had a different outcome. Absolutely. So although the, although she couldn't be officially considered missing, campus police did take Catherine's photo and began asking students around campus if they had seen her or if she had talked to anyone. At the 24-hour mark, Catherine had still not turned up and her missing persons report went live. Campus police then created hundreds of flyers about her disappearance and they began hanging them around campus and they also began working up a profile on Catherine to see if they could get any leads as to her whereabouts. Not surprisingly, Tish and Jamie were at the forefront of the flyer distribution. They were asking every single student they passed if they had seen Catherine or knew anything. But unfortunately, no one had, and it was like she just vanished into thin air. A campus-wide search was organized the next day with around 50 students and faculty assisting the police in a line search of the campus and the surrounding woods. Only an hour into the search, around 10 a.m., a student began screaming. They had found a body. 
In later interviews, Tish described this moment explaining, quote, The search party came running out of the woods. We saw their faces. That was all we had to know. There was no doubt that the body was 18-year-old Catherine Foster. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. The student who had found Catherine originally thought that she was just asleep in a small hollow in the woods. But when they got closer, unfortunately, it became clear that she was deceased. As police taped off the scene, the first detective to come on the case was Sergeant Wilbur Williams, and he immediately noticed some strange things about Catherine's death. First, her body was pristine. Her clothes were literally perfect, her hair and makeup unblemished. There was also no sign that she had been sexually assaulted. I said that's interesting. In fact, Megan, she had fallen in a natural position on her side and there were no defensive wounds and the ground around her was undisturbed. So there was zero indication of a struggle. There were also no drag marks on the ground. So if she had been killed somewhere else, someone must have picked her up and placed her in this spot very carefully. Are they looking at this like an accident? Good question, Megan, because the next thing I was going to say, I think we'll clear that up. Now, the only sign at all that this was a murder were the two bullet holes in her head, one on the side of her head and one behind her ear as if she'd been executed. But who would want to execute Catherine Foster? As the investigation opened and Sergeant Williams worked up a profile on Catherine, it quickly became understood that Catherine had no known enemies at all. She was not involved in drugs or any criminal activities, In fact, she was a straight-A student who spent all her time with her friends or boyfriend or studying. So right off the bat, he knew that this would not be easy. But they had to start somewhere. And as you could probably guess, Megan, Sergeant Williams believed that Catherine had known her killer. Or believed that it was someone trustworthy, maybe like a public safety officer, a staff member, or somebody from the faculty. She clearly hadn't tried to fight back or escape. He also presumed that she had been killed at this spot. The ground was cold and there were no footprints in the area. I'd just like to point out really quick that people don't tend to fight back when there's a gun involved. So I just wanted to put that as a point of kind of clarification or or just like, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't think that was the right observation to make that because she hadn't fought back. She must have known her attacker. I think when there's a gun involved, people don't tend to fight back. Uh, Absolutely correct. And she was not carrying herself. So um, I think we could all understand the fear that someone must experience in that situation. Okay. Thanks for pointing that out. Catherine's body was taken for an autopsy and the medical examiner ruled that she had been shot at close range with a 22 caliber handgun. However, the time of death was difficult to determine. Like I mentioned, it had been very cold outside and this kind of preserved the body. And while they did run several tests to decipher decomposition and insect activity, the closest the ME could give was an 8 to 24 hour time period before she had been located. Now, that's a pretty big window. Yes. And so obviously this made it really difficult for investigators because without being able to narrow down the window of time, they would have a harder time trying to figure out who she had been with at the time of her death. So did they get any leads? Yeah, it was just a few days into the investigation and they got their first lead or their first good lead from a student. Around 2.30 a.m. on the morning of February 23rd, 
This would have been about eight hours before Catherine's body was found. A student says they woke up having an asthma attack and the student had opened her window to get some fresh air. And that's when she heard two pops in the woods. At the time, she thought kids were just setting off fireworks. But after Catherine's murder, she wondered if what she had actually heard were gunshots. Well, that's helpful because it'll help establish a timeline. It absolutely could help establish a timeline once they can determine whether or not this is substantiated. Sure. But interestingly, the testimony was corroborated by two campus security officers who had been doing their rounds on the grounds. Now, this was on the 23rd. And again, they say they heard two pops in the woods around 2.30 a.m. But they also just assumed it was just students partying in the woods and shooting off fireworks. So they did not investigate. Now, this is kind of problematic because I don't know if you recall, but Catherine had gone missing on the 21st. But these ear witnesses heard these noises on the 23rd. So that would mean that somebody was holding Catherine for two days before actually shooting her. Or it's completely unrelated. Or it's completely unrelated. Um, You know, as I said, there's such a wide range on Catherine's time of death that nothing was really certain. And there were really no leads at all that could fit this timeline. This timeline being that she was now taken for two days. So this kind of, you know, unfortunately, it sounded like a good lead at first, but it didn't really go anywhere. Okay. People don't always recollect dates correctly. Yeah. And students at the school were terrified. As far as they knew, there was a murderer on the loose and there were no obvious leads. And this was a small, tight-knit campus community. And anyone who'd known Catherine had liked her so much. So in addition to their fear, the whole campus was really in mourning. People just couldn't understand why anyone would want to murder a sweet young woman like Catherine. But as we often see in murder cases, investigators started with the people who knew Catherine best. Her Mm. friends. Right. I already figured out. I just want you to know that I've already figured this out, but okay. I'm not going to ruin don't, it for anyone else. Well, remember, she has two friends and a boyfriend, so we're going to look at all of them, right? Uh, yes, correct. Okay. All right. So let's see. The police would spend a long time questioning Tish and Jamie because, remember, Jamie was reportedly the last person to have seen Catherine before she'd gone missing. And Jamie had told the police about the friend's plan to go shopping and that Catherine had forgotten her purse and went back to get it and that she would that she had met Jamie at her car. Now, when Catherine didn't come back, Jamie explained that she assumed Catherine had gone off somewhere with Tom because of because she had done things like that in the past. So that's why her and Tish continued on to the store. And Megan and Tish told a similar story and said that she had been with Jamie that day as Jamie had driven and that the two had been together most of the time since their friend's disappearance. Did she also say that they were supposed to go shopping or that she exactly. was going to go yep. shopping? Yep. And they went shopping and the same exact thing. They assumed she was with her boyfriend. No one was concerned. Now, throughout the interviews, both Tish and Jamie were obviously distraught and police found their testimony to be credible. So, of course, they then turned their attention to Tom because Tom is Catherine's boyfriend. And Tish and Jamie had reported that the two had a fight about a week before her death. Apparently at a party, Catherine had caught Tom kissing another girl and she was very angry and upset about it. But it did seem like the two had worked things out. They were not actively in a fight, but of course, police now are turning their sights towards Tom as a person of interest. And they say he seemed appropriately upset during his interview, but unfortunately, his alibi was that he had been asleep in his dorm on the 23rd. 
but he had a single with no roommate, so there was no way to corroborate his statements. Really sucks for people who live alone, by the way. Oh, who can substantiate that? You're like, well, if I do live alone, I mean, I know nobody, especially in, you know, during the time here, there's no social media. So they could, you know, like you can't check people's activities, nothing to verify his activity. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard time. So they sent him for a polygraph and he did fail the polygraph, but I don't put much stock in polygraphs, Megan. Do you? No, I don't. Um, I want to, but I just know too many cases where the polygraph was absolutely wrong. It, you know, I'm not sure that this really changed much for Tom anyway, because they had zero physical evidence that would tie him to Catherine's murder. All they had was this potential fight they had a week ago and this polygraph test. So they really had no choice but to let him go at this point. So with no obvious leads to the three people closest to Catherine, investigators turned their attention to someone Catherine may have found trustworthy, maybe faculty or staff at the university. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. So they began running background checks on staff and faculty, and they found that one of the janitors who had keys to all of the rooms on campus, including classrooms and dorm rooms, Came back, came back with a sexual assault charge. But she wasn't sexually assaulted, correct? She was not sexually assaulted. But, you know, they're looking for anything at this point. And do we know anything about this charge? Uh, you know, sexual assault is very broad. Mm-hmm. So apparently he had offered a female student a ride home. And rather than bringing her home, he brought her to his home and attacked her. And while she was able to fight him off, he shot her in the leg as she tried to leave. Oh, that's quite serious. It's a very serious crime. But, you know, so they did question this man about Catherine, but he had a rock solid alibi as well as time stamped work cards for his whereabouts on campus that night. So this lead went absolutely nowhere. And Megan, the next lead would not arise until three years later. So for three years, this was completely cold. In February of 1983, police were alerted to a man who had died by suicide in his home. And when they arrived on the scene, they found that the man had a shrine to Catherine in his living room. And this would include her autopsy report, newspaper clippings of her murder, and cut photos of her from the papers. Now, this looks pretty promising to investigators, especially because as they continue to search the premises, they found a chicken wire cage in the attic that had a mattress and pillows in it with a lock on the outside. What? But when the family was questioned on this cage, they told police that it had been used for the man's father who had dementia. He would lock his father in at night so he wouldn't wander the house and hurt himself. Okay. I Yeah, I'm not sure about this, but um, upon further investigation of the man himself, it turns out that he had been the that he had actually been the campus police officer on duty the night of Catherine's murder and that he and his partner were the two that heard those two pops in the woods. You know, the ones that were not investigated. Right. So he had been with his partner the entire shift. So there was absolutely no way he could have shot Catherine. So perhaps the shrine to Catherine had been created by a man who perhaps was riddled with guilt that he had not gone into the woods to see what the source of the noise has been. I'm not sure. But either way, this was a dead end. 
Yeah, there can be any number of reasons that people also become attached to a victim or a family or feel personally involved. Mm -hmm. So there's a number of explanations for that. With no more leads, Catherine's case went cold. And while her files remained opened and many different detectives worked dead-end tips every few months, there was no movement on the case at all for over 20 years. However, in 2002, a new detective took on the case, Mike Morgan, who had graduated from South and very much knew about Catherine's murder from being a student there. And he was determined to solve this case and bring closure to her family once and for all. And in December of 2002, a tip came in. This tip was from a man from Pascagoula who called the police station and said that he had a strange story that, if true, would solve the cold case murder of Catherine Foster. Now, this man was part of Alcohols Anonymous, and he sponsored new people who came into the program. Now, for those who don't know, part of Alcohol Anonymous's principle is that they have a 12-step program that members have to follow. And one of those steps is to take responsibility for past wrongs and make amends to those that you've wronged. Now, this man claimed that in their last meeting, one of his sponsors, a woman by the name of Jamie Letson, had claimed that she needed to right a wrong. She was the murderer who had killed Catherine Foster in 1980, and she was ready to admit it. Obviously, everyone at this meeting found this announcement shocking, and and her sponsor called the police immediately. He had also told Detective Morgan that Jamie had written a making amends letter as part of her recovery program in which Jamie allegedly confessed to the murder. I'm just going to say that's a confession letter. Yes. So who is Jamie Letson? Well, if you haven't been able to put this together, she's actually Jamie Kellum, Catherine's college friend. Now, Jamie had married and changed her name to Letson. However, her life since Catherine's disappearance had not been an easy one. Jamie had been arrested several times for many issues, including drugs, alcoholism, and theft. She also had a long history of alcohol abuse, which is why she had been attending those AA meetings. But how had investigators missed this potential lead back in 1980? After all, both Jamie and Tish had been questioned extensively by the police. Because the ME wasn't able to give a narrowed window for Catherine's time of death, remember, based on that ruling of an 18 to 24-hour window, and also those witness statements about gunshots at 2.30 a.m. on February 23rd, and Jamie had a pretty tight alibi for her whereabouts at those specific times. Remember, she was with Tish. So was Jamie's AA sponsor even a credible tip? Is it possible that Jamie was just saying this? Well, of course, Detective Morgan had to work this out, right? So he worked with the original ME on the case, who had since retired, as well as the current ME, to find out if it's possible that Catherine could have been killed earlier than February 23rd. Now, again, they were assuming it was February 23rd because of those gunshots that or or because of the alleged gunshots that people heard, but based on nothing else. So now they want to go back. And they they knew that if Jamie did this, there's no way that Catherine was killed on the 23rd. So they enlisted the help of the body farm. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, of course. Uh, In Tennessee. Yes. It's at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. The body farm is a research facility where forensic scientists study human decomposition under a variety of environmental circumstances. And I urge you all, and if you haven't heard about the body farm, definitely check out, you know, what they do because it is really interesting and groundbreaking. 
Detective Morgan and the current Emmy worked with the body farm to recreate the environmental conditions surrounding Catherine's death. And the farm was able to procure a body of a young female who closely fit Catherine's description. Now, the forensic scientists left the body in the conditions and monitored it until the decomposition matched that of Catherine when she was found on February 24th, 1980. And what they found was that the cold temperatures stagnated the decomposition process and fly activity, meaning that Catherine had likely not been murdered in the early morning hours of February 23rd. They said that she'd probably actually been killed 48 hours earlier, which would make the timeline closer to the morning of February 21st. So what about those gunshots heard heard in the woods? Well, it was never proven, but it's also possible that the gunshots were just fireworks as initially suspected by the people who heard them. Okay, so with this information in mind, Jamie's original alibi no longer held up because as the last person to have seen Catherine, it's very possible that Jamie would have had the ability to kill Catherine on the 21st. But Detective Morgan needed to get a physical copy of that amends letter in order to make an arrest. So how would he get this letter? Well, from Jamie's stepdad. Now, Jamie had left this letter with him while she was in between living situations. And when Detective Morgan arrived to ask her stepdad if, if he knew anything about the situation, Her stepdad not only knew about it, but he had the letter in a locked safe. Now, why he didn't immediately bring it to the cops is unclear. Is it possible that Jamie often told tales, so maybe he just didn't believe her? Or maybe he was covering for her? I mean, we'll never really know, but either way, he had the letter. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. What did the letter say? So the letter was three handwritten pages that were torn out of a notebook. And I'll just read a portion of it here. Dear Catherine, it's me, Jamie, the girl who took your life. I don't know where to begin. I was your friend, but I was obsessed with Tom and you were in my way. I am acutely aware of what I did that day. In ending your life, I robbed your family and loved ones of a future with you. I came here to make amends to you, but there is no way that I can make amends to killing you. There is no way to make things right, but at least I want you to know that I realize what a horrible thing I did. I don't know what else to say, Kate. And if you'd like to read the whole letter, there's a link to it in our show notes. Now, Megan, what do you think about this letter? Do you think this is credible? Um, do you think this is enough to arrest her? What do we think? It's enough to question her, uh, certainly. It's enough to put her at the top of the list. I do find it credible, because if she was seriously working AA, that is a significant step. And I'm sure guilt had gotten to her. And I'm just going to say from the beginning, I suspected her and I thought that it was jealousy related, but I wasn't sure how. What made you suspect her? I think sometimes I hear um, two girls were very close and a third one comes into the mix in terms of friendships and at sometimes at a certain age. And there's just a... And it might, there's just something that goes off in my head and it might be related, look, to like scholar niece and other cases that have been recent, but that's just where my head went. Interesting. It makes a lot of sense, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, with the letter as evidence, Detective Morgan was able to obtain an arrest warrant for Jamie. And on September 21st of 2008, 28 years later, Jamie Kellum Letson was arrested 
outside of a halfway house in Jackson, Mississippi, for the murder of Catherine Foster. According to Detective Morgan in his interview with Secret of the Morgue, Jamie was waiting for him at the door of the halfway house when he arrived, and she went willingly and agreed to give a full confession. In fact, in her interview, Jamie cited that she had been obsessed with Catherine's boyfriend and she wanted to date him and needed to get Catherine out of the way in order to do so. So she had lured Catherine into the woods of South's campus in the late morning of February 21st, 1980. Now, this was under the guise of needing to collect plant samples for her biology class. Jamie said that she'd make sure that Catherine stayed in front of her for the walk into the woods. And when Catherine leaned down to examine some of the plants, Jamie shot her friend in the head with a 22 caliber pistol that she had stolen from her grandmother. After Catherine fell to the ground, Jamie shot her a second time in the temple before throwing the gun away in a campus dumpster. Wow. That's, that's her, is that her first act of violence or does she have a history? Um, as far as we know, this is her first documented act of violence. And I want to okay. say that they never actually found the pistol that Jamie had thrown in the dumpster. They did, however, find a pistol at the bottom of a pond nearby, but it ended up not matching the bullets that had killed Catherine. Oh, gosh. So Jamie says after she shot her friend, she ran to the parking lot where she was supposed to meet Tish to go shopping. Mm -hmm. She was upset that Catherine and Tom were still together after their first semester. And she admitted that she often stole Catherine's photos of Tom and she would show them to her family and tell her family that Tom was her boyfriend. I mean, this is a true obsession. Yeah. Yes. And after the arrest, the judge put her on a half a million dollar bail. Okay. Okay. So what do you think, Megan? Do you think that she would take a deal or go to trial? I mean, I would think she would take a deal only because she did confess and it seemed she wanted to make things right. But every time, you never know with these cases, you know, yeah. all of a sudden she might have realized how substantial the punishment was going to be and, you know, thought she could maybe beat it at trial. Yep. I'm I was very surprised to learn that Jamie chose to go to trial. She put in a not guilty plea and she claimed that her confession was made up. Now, her, okay. her defense team had character witnesses and other proof that Jamie often told tales for attention at one point, citing that her confessing to the murder during AA was just to one-up someone else in the group who had a manslaughter charge. The defense further cited the public safety officer who had the shrine to Catherine, claiming that that was the real killer, and that the ME changing the time of death after the fact had only been done to fit with Jamie's confession. Well, that's a good defense, and I mean... In fairness, from many of my friends that I know who have been in AA, they have described that their pasts were um, filled with a lot of lying. Um, so you could you could somewhat make that argument as well. Um, can I, I'm not saying everyone in AA lies or whatnot. I'm saying anecdotally, this is what I've been told. I assume the prosecution is kind of hinging on this confession, but is there... Uh, do they have anything else for their case? Yeah. So not surprisingly, you know, the prosecution, they were focusing on this letter that was in Jamie's handwriting, as well as her taped confession to, de to Detective Morgan in her intake interview. But they would also call Tom and Tish to the stand. 
And Tish now recalled that she found it odd that Jamie had acted nervous and agitated at lunch on the 21st. And then Tom recalled that about a month after Catherine's funeral, he approached Jamie and said to her, I know you know more than you have told police. You need to tell them everything you know. But Jamie hadn't answered him and simply walked away crying. I wonder why Tom even suspected that, but okay. I don't know. That's strange, right? I wish I had a little more information on that. Ew. After a two-week trial and several hours of deliberation, the jury found Jamie Kellum Letson guilty of murder, and she was sentenced to life in prison in 2010. Wow. So they believed, okay. So she was sentenced to life in prison, but her first parole eligibility is this year in November of 2023. And if she gets granted parole, she'll have served 13 years, which seems like a very short sentence for the charges. To be honest, she probably would have gotten a deal similar to that had she pled guilty because she was admitting it. I have a feeling she would have gotten something quite similar. Mm -hmm. I also am not sure that she will be granted parole, but I will certainly keep my eye on this case. Sure. Yeah. No, I wouldn't think she's going to get parole first time up here. This was a premeditated murder. Now, do you think that her showing remorse in the letter will at all um, help work towards parole for her? I don't know, because the problem is she showed remorse in the letter and then disputed it and is going on a claim of, you know, um, actual innocence. So... It's it doesn't mean it could anything. wind up hurting her, yeah, or it could be a wash. So I'm not really sure it's going to do her a lot of good now. Yeah, I think it it would depend on not only what she did in prison over those 13 years, but I think more so if she's still saying that it was a false confession or if she's owning up to it. Exactly. Aside from Jamie going to prison, there wasn't much aftermath in this case since it had taken almost 30 years to be solved. Now, I couldn't find any information on whether or not South had bumped up their security after Catherine's murder or even what their safety is like now. But it should be noted that no other murders have taken place on South's campus since Catherine's. I also couldn't find any scholarships or memorials to Catherine on South's campus. So I'd say the conclusion for this one is is just a success and that it was finally solved after such a long time. And while we always talk here about how there really isn't a such thing as closure, I'm sure that her family feels some sense of peace that they finally got answers, even if it took so many decades. The Body Farm played a huge role in helping to solve this long case. So if our listeners are interested in learning more about Body Farm or would like to donate to their research, you can check out their website at fac.utk.edu. Before we go today, if you'd like to support Campus Killings, consider subscribing to the show with an Abjack Insider subscription through Apple Podcasts. Your subscription will get you VIP access to all the shows on the network that not only includes hundreds of episodes of ad-free listening, but also bonus content and early access to episodes. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, You'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting this show in the process. Head over to Apple Podcasts and search for either Campus Killings or Abjack and you can start your subscription with a free trial. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you everyone for listening today and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg. 
with research and writing by Abigail Belcastro. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook at facebook.com slash campus killings. You can also visit the show's homepage at campuskillings.com. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.